Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Focus Group Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, and this week we are checking in on Gen Z. The recent New York Times Siena poll that everyone freaked out about had Joe Biden's approval rating with voters age 18 to 29 at 31% and disapproval rating at 65%. And Biden was only leading Trump by one point among young voters in that poll. My guest today is one of my favorite people to talk to about today's youths, youths, <laughs> youth people. Peter Hamby, host of the Snapchat show, Good Luck America, and co-founder of Puck News, which I read religiously. Peter, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. As a uh, old millennial, I, you know, I love talking about Gen Z. I feel like an authority. <laughs> what year were you born? 81. 81. Okay, so I was born in 1980, hmm. and... You know, for people like you and I, there is a subgenre. I don't know if you know this, called Xennials, mm-hmm. which I believe is 78 to 82. Okay. We're a very specific group where we were both had the internet early enough yeah. that it has like been a big part of our lives, but also not so early that we didn't sort of get really used to just regular phones and had to memorize everyone's phone numbers and like didn't have it in elementary school or even really high school. Like I got the internet with the dial up, the AOL dial up sometime in high school. Yeah, no. And I think on the other end, you've got the, I don't know the word, but the Gen Z millennial types who came up with social media. Fully native. Yeah. We have a little bit more of a touch point where we lived at a time when if you were bored, you didn't have a lot to do. You just get in your car and drive somewhere and listen to CDs. Or we grew up parked in front of the television, partly because of my Snapchat job and my time spent with Gen Z. I feel like I can inhabit a room with a bunch of Gen X people and talk about vinyl and then like yep. <laughs> head over to the Gen Z uh, offices and talk to them about Snapchat and TikTok and whatnot. Yeah, we, we straddle. It's good to see my fellow Xennial. Okay. We are in a moment where people are particularly freaked out about young people. Democrats Mm -hmm. are really freaked Mm -hmm. out about young people. And a lot of that has to do with what is a schism in the Democratic Party about Israel versus not just Hamas, Palestine in general, but also just overall. Joe Biden's age sort of looms over the conversation around politics. And so, you know, younger people having a tough time identifying with an 81, 82-year-old president is also uh, an issue. And so... Do you think it's true that we're actually seeing like a break-even point between Republicans and Democrats mm. with young people? And like, what do you make of the backsliding? Why is it happening? I think this is one of those like polling debates that we watch in real time on Twitter where like certain pollsters are like, don't trust the cross tabs and these subsamples are hard to believe. You know, the New York Times Siena poll, as you mentioned, basically showed Trump and Biden at parity with young voters. I I think that can be true right now. I find it hard to believe that that will be the case come next year. Biden has real issues with young people. I think that's right. I think that New York Times poll had 20% 
of self-identified Democrats giving Biden disapproval rating, which is <laughs> horrible for a Democratic incumbent president. And that number was higher among young voters of color. And I think Biden has demonstrated a real weakness with Black and Hispanic voters under the age of 40. I was listening to another podcast. It was what 538 podcast, and they had a pollster on saying, you know, right now, Black voters over 50 feel like the most reliable Democratic constituency, and Black voters under 50 feel like the least reliable. It's this real disconnect. So, look, I think the war in Israel and Gaza is certainly driving some discontent that's softening Biden's poll numbers, but that softness existed before Hamas launched its attack on Israel. It's been there the whole time. It's gone up and down. Like, there's been moments where Biden is seen as fighting for young people, and he's effectively communicated that around certain issues. But all things being equal, you know, if you talk to any of these Democrats in your focus groups, I think they prefer somebody other than Biden, but it's hard for them to come up with an idea of who. It is. Okay, so for this show, we talked to self-identified progressives who voted for Biden in 2020 and self-identified conservatives who voted for Trump in 2020. So they're all age 25 and under and Mm -hmm. are either still attending a four-year college or have recently graduated. So like we're really with these young guys. And I want to start with the young progressives because it's very common in the focus groups that I do for people to kind of be uneasy about the current state of the country. This is across all the political spectrum, Dems, you know, when it comes to the economy, just Mm -hmm. a lot of negativity. But I'm not sure that you can encounter a more sort of group that is more uh, catastrophizing about where we are than young progressives talking about the future. Let's listen. For a lot of people, even people who have master's degrees have, I don't have a master myself, but have a hard time finding jobs. I also live in Florida. So the LGBTQ issue, it's terrible here. I myself am an ally and I fear for any person that has to go through the hatred and the disgusting policies that Ron DeSantis is trying to enforce. And of course, gun violence, especially in schools. Like amongst my friends, when we're talking about where we want to settle down and stuff, that things like exposure to climate change in certain areas and increased chances of certain natural disasters due to climate change in certain areas, it's starting to become something that we're actually considering. We're thinking about moving somewhere. Um, as a kid, I was really, really affected by the Sandy Hook shooting. And I like ended up skipping a whole grade of school because I was so terrified as a kid. Um, so between like elementary school and early high school, I just tried to stay out of news completely. And then as the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, I like went fully back into it because I was so upset. My generation isn't going to be able to achieve a lot of like standard things that the previous generations were like owning a home and such. I'm also just continuously disappointed with like the amount of waste that the U.S. produces like as a, a, a environmental concerns. As far as kids, that's a long way out for me, but it's like, it's like second thoughts even having kids, like can I even afford them? It's just a lot, like just not too confident on the future. From an environmental standpoint, just how long will it even be here, really? So, Peter, these young people, they think they can't have kids because the country's literally going to, like, sink into the ocean any minute. And there's no hope for sort of the American dream, so many concerns about the economy. But I also, 
I don't know. I remember being 25. Like, is this, is this just normal quarter life crisis stuff? Like, I don't know. You're young. You don't have any money. You can't afford to buy a house yet. You can't see a path to doing it. Does every generation do this? Or is there something real and specific happening with current Gen Zers? There is something real and specific, but I also think you are correct to say a lot of this represents the kind of permanent lament of young people figuring their way out in the world and not having a lot of money. There was someone in your focus group also who lived in New York City and was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay here if I can afford it. It's like there was another young woman in the focus group who lived in Missouri. And like she didn't say her economic circumstances were very good, but she did say she was able to buy a house. And everyone else in the focus group was like, wow, oh, congrats. That's awesome. So like the complaint that New York is too expensive. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's pretty timeless. We can get it more into the effects of social media. I do feel like when you and I were in college, we didn't have all of the language you have about like trauma and oppression and, you know, all this, the psychological stuff that is now commonplace in the vocabulary of young people. And all of that is magnified by social media and gives people something to blame other than the fact that, yeah, you're 22 and figuring out your way in the world. Here's what I will say, though, to these folks' credit. One thing we have to realize and set back as, as millennials and understand is these folks that you were talking to came of age at a very different time than we millennials did. Yes, we graduated into a recession. Yes, millennials had to deal with foreign wars. There was a lot going on at different time. Gen Z really became politically sentient in the Trump era. And even then, maybe like, like well after 2016. And they just have like a fundamentally different experience growing up with gun violence, the specter of political violence, and a kind of stagnancy for them in the economy that is a little bit different than the Great Recession that um, some millennials lived through. The economy, by certain signals, you know, has been doing pretty well. The problem is that Gen Z feels like they can't access it. You know, it's a different version of the sort of income inequality conversation that like wages aren't keeping up with prices, that rent is too expensive. You know, so there's a bit of a give and take here. I mean, a lot of young people want to live in like the cool blue cities. Sorry, rent is really expensive in those cities. So there's a bit of both. But I was struck by the the woman who mentioned Sandy Hook. Like, that's a good example. Like, she was probably like, I don't know, 10 or 11 when that happened. She also said in the focus group that she had to like take a couple years off school later because she was so scared of going to school. That's so real. And so that generation has this baked in cynicism, partisanship, fear that I think a lot of millennials didn't have. A lot of millennials were like change the world types. You know, they were in the in the era of Barack Obama. They were always posting about like how cool it was to be involved in politics. This generation doesn't think politics and the system is going to work for them in any way. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I too felt um, there's like a couple times I wanted to maybe roll my eyes. Like some of these progressives are just they're so on brand where it's like one girl said something like, you know, my grandma's really problematic. Sometimes she said some really problematic things and Joe Biden and my grandma are the same age. And so I think he probably is problematic too. And like, I want to laugh at those things, but just like even the phrase problematic, I was like, this is not a thing that existed when we were young. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking about how, cause I'm on the older end of this millennial side of things. The first bad thing that I remember happening was the challenger exploding. Hmm. 
I was like five though. That's and my like, first memory. Yeah. So you're like four or five. So the Challenger exploded. But then like the other things I remember are the Cold War ending, the wall coming down, like tremendous hope and optimism. America has like won the Cold War and like the wars that we were fighting, especially when I was a kid, it was like far away. Like I couldn't really feel it. And then it's like, you know, Bill Clinton with his saxophone and like the big <laughs> fights were over sexual immorality. And I became a young conservatives at a time because I thought he was kind of a dirtbag. And I felt like the feminists were being hypocrites and, you know, but like that just all feels so quaint. Yep. And I remember graduating into like a recession and all my college friends talking about like, oh, there's a recession. But like, I don't know, everyone got jobs, everyone was fine. And I was in college when 9-11 happened. And I was also in college when Columbine happened, mm -hmm. which was the first real school shooting that was like in everybody's memory. But it was also the beginning of these school shootings becoming not common, but not uncommon either. Mm -hmm. And I just think about the world that they grew up with that is post 9-11, wars constantly in Afghanistan and Iraq where we are not winning mm -hmm. with things coming out about America, you know, the um, Abu Ghraib, and then all of it on social media. My friends and I say to each other all the time, thank God we didn't have phones in high school. Yeah. So it is different. We came up in, a, in I think, a more optimistic way. Absolutely. I've been evangelizing about this book lately that Chuck Klosterman wrote, came out last year, called The 90s. And it's a really good social history of the era. And you know that was the Fukuyama end of history time. Uh, it was also the last decade in world history where we were at once bombarded by constant media, television, magazines, newspapers, whatever. And yet there was no internet. And so like our memories worked differently at the time and people could check out of society if they'd want to. And by that, I mean, they didn't feel compelled at every moment to have a take. They didn't need to go online and post because they couldn't. And that sort of gets to what I was saying. Like if you didn't want to participate in a march, uh, you didn't have to. You could go hang out with your friends. You could get in a car and just drive around for <laughs> a few hours. But he makes the point that he marks the end of the decade at 9-11, like technically, like the world changed after 9-11. And like the big fights before then, it was like the V-chip. <laughs> um, but he does talk about Bush v. Gore. And like this was a huge moment, obviously in hindsight, it consumed the country. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone had to take. Al Gore came out, gave his speech, the Supreme Court, you know, made their decision. There were certainly some protests after that. There was some anger, especially among Democrats for years. But like people mostly just went back to their lives. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't this all consuming thing. And he makes the point that that would just be an impossibility today. I really recommend that book, even as a history of like knowledge and how we thought about music and politics and art and pop culture in the era, just very different than folks coming of age now and, and who came up not just with social media, but with cell phones. Yeah. And the other thing to mention as we get into some of the stuff on the left is not only did the, all these folks come of age during the Trump years, they came of age watching Bernie Sanders and the ascendance of uh, within the Democratic Party, that, that sort of DSA, very, very progressive social justice slash identity focus slash economic populism. And that creates a sort of world where you can blame the fact that you can't buy a house or afford a car on larger economic forces that are working against 
you. Whereas like the Obama years, you know, he was a capitalist. He was a neoliberal, (laughs) you know, work hard, play by the rules. You'll succeed in our culture. And that just doesn't really check out for a lot of Gen Z uh, liberals. I I want to finish on the progressives because one of the things that was interesting is even though they very much reflected what we're seeing in the polls in terms of feeling like Biden is too old and is detached from them culturally, they did all say they were going to vote and they did all say they were going to vote for Biden. So let's listen. It's just not exciting to vote for Biden versus Trump. It's like, oh, Biden's fine. Trump sucks. Like everyone else saying, he's fine. He's old. I worry about him. They're not doing a good job of showing him being strong and like that he can handle another four years. But he's been actively put in the media to be like fallen and, you know, looking senile and stuff like that. So like we don't want to vote for him. Nobody wants to vote for him now. And there is no other option. So, yes, we will vote for him because we do not like Trump. And obviously that was like a terrible time for most people. And the last four years, truthfully, were not that bad. Yeah, I'm pretty unmotivated to vote, but I'm still going to vote because I'm going to act on that right. I wish there was like more fresher and younger faces that were running, like have you know new ideas, because I think that's what we need. But I'm still just going to vote for Biden because like I believe it's still the lesser of the two evils. It's no offense to Biden, but he's like about to like croak any second. I think I'll mainly be voting for kind of like the other things that are on the ballot and trying to get like representatives in that represent my values because I don't think the president is going to really be able to do that. I've had people tell me, oh, well, I'm going to do third party. I'm going to do independent. I'm like, God, no, please don't. Any vote that's for Trump, any vote that's for independent, like it screws us. I think a lot of like the stuff we've seen the past four years, a lot of it is state individual. A lot of that is who we vote in locally. I'm going to go for the lesser of the two evils right now, just kind of the situation, but it, it does feel like sometimes like frustrating to be in a state where like it doesn't really matter like if I vote or not for the presidential election, it's more for the local elections. We oftentimes joke about playing a game with the focus groups where we have to drink whenever people say lesser of two evils. And if we had done this that during <laughs> the young people groups, we'd be dead. <laughs> like because of how many times people just said lesser of two evils. So tell me if you read that as good news or bad news. Because they have bad and lukewarm and whatever things to say about Biden. And yet Trump still gets them out of bed to vote. I read that and we might disagree on this, but if you're a Democrat and you're rooting for Joe Biden next year to be dragged across the finish line, I saw notes of optimism in here, actually. And this this cuts to something that, and I'm going to reference John De La Volpe here a bunch because he's a pal and he's done a lot of research on this generation for the Harvard Youth Poll. I talked to him a lot. He occasionally advises President Biden. A consequence of the Trump era for this generation is, yeah, They think politics sucks, but they also understand the stakes are really, really high. And they delivered some strong margins in key states, House and Senate gov races in 2022 that helped Democrats, you know, shore up the vote and and mitigate losses. They have shown, going back to 2018, the capacity to vote no matter what. I was interested to hear a lot of them say they were going to show up to vote for races down ballot, even if they weren't hyped about Joe Biden. That is something, and like, I don't want to take too much credit for this at SNAP, but like, you know, my old colleague, Sophia Gross ran 
this important partnership and education program like back in 2018 and 2020, where we just like educated and registered millions of young people to vote. And I think they just get the stakes and the importance of voting and, and vote on issues and local politicians and local issues. I think more than they care about Joe Biden being at the top of the ballot. This is a thing like I've seen a lot of Democratic professionals on Twitter say this in, in recent months as they've been you know, rolling their eyes at Gen Z, like politics is always about the lesser of two evils. Like you're never going to get your ideal candidate out there, but you do have a, a duty to vote. And so that made me feel hopeful. The, the line from Democrats, from the Biden White House, from the Biden campaign and my conversations with them is these voters will come home once Trump is on the ballot. Now with Cornell West and Jill Stein and RFK Jr. out there, like it's a scary line. You know, I did a piece for Puck with John Del Volpe uh, last year, and, and he was working with Emma Bloomberg's Education Foundation, Murmuration, and they were trying to study Gen Z. And this was in the summer of 2022. They found that among Americans under age 25, 30% said they would definitely vote in November 2022. I went back and looked. According to Circle at Tufts University, which studies youth turnout, 23% ended showing up. So there's obviously a difference between always what people say they're going to do and what they actually do. But I only raise that to say that like the margins are going to be incredibly thin and people were really motivated to vote against Donald Trump in 2020. I feel like people are going to be slightly less motivated to vote <laughs> this time. But Democrats win in presidential elections when they win over 60% of young voters. Hillary barely dipped below that line and she lost. Biden was above that line and he won. Um, Obama was obviously above that line. So that's a, that's a key number to look out for. And like, you know, two or three points either way. I'm scared if you're a Democrat, but I'm also thinking, okay, that's better than I thought. They don't like Joe Biden, but they still think it's important to vote. So here's the thing that I thought was wild. And I was genuinely surprised by this. And it, the strategist in me immediately was like, well, wait a minute. These young people are all talking about the importance of voting down ballot. We don't have enough mm -hmm. time to play all the stuff. But one of the things that was very much in the conversation was they were all very aware that some states mattered and some states didn't mm -hmm. in terms of the national election. Like there were people in Pennsylvania or like they'd gone to college in Pennsylvania and that their vote counted more when they were there going to college than it would when they moved back home or wherever they went off to. And this is where abortion, I think, can become really powerful for Democrats, where even when I think Donald Trump can nullify or or take some of the potency out of the abortion argument by sounding more moderate, which he often does, mm. I think for young people in turnout, selling them on local elections suddenly to me like went blaring red listening to them. Like, actually, don't talk about Joe Biden. Talk about the mm. lunatic Republican who's running in the local race and the Democrat who's there and just get them to the polls on anything local. And like, that's a little inverse, I think. A lot of times people are like, well, they're going to pay more attention to national politics. At least in more recent years, the whole like all politics is local stuff has really been falling away because of how much the national media has just nationalized politics. But I think, I wonder if for young people, it can be the inverse. My experiences anecdotally and with, I think, some survey research show that Gen Z really cares more about local stuff than we give them credit for. And another thing to keep in mind here is a lot of the candidates running at the local level, and it could be, you know, dog catcher, tax commissioner, like school board, whatever. They are Gen Z. They are millennials. And so, like, people want to vote for candidates who look like them, who talk like them, who are younger and more diverse. Like, the bench of the Democratic Party on the local, local level 
is way more diverse and perhaps compelling than all the old white dudes <laughs> and old white ladies running at the national levels. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Okay, we've hit the top lines on the young progressives. I'm going to move to the what we heard from some of the young conservatives about their how they're feeling about the current Republican Party. And you're going to notice a common thread among the GOP candidates that these guys were interested in. Let's listen. I'm a pretty big Trump stan. These allegations kind of hurt, but I just feel like for the strength of our country, like internationally and for the economy, like he's the best bet. I really like DeSantis. Ever since my friend introduced me to him, he introduced the um, Don't Say Gay Bill. I'm a like, strong advocate for that. Now, by no means am I against gay people, but I'm just saying like we shouldn't be pushing that type of ideology that early on, and especially in like elementary school, middle school, where people, you know, the kids are still in development and whatnot. I don't think it's realistic for him to be president right now, but I do like Vivek Ramaswamy a lot. I think that he's helping to control the narrative and lead the discussion, especially at the debates. And being a Trump supporter, I appreciate that he is, you know, on Trump's side when it comes to a lot of these things. Um, I, we're at 30 plus trillion dollars in debt or whatever, and we're still kind of going out of our way to add humanitarian and like military aid to these packages for countries that like Ukraine isn't exactly like the model democracy that, you know, people kind of hold it up to be, I would say. And so when a lot of candidates, and I think this is what Trump has kind of got his finger on the pulse best with his, his understanding of what the party wants. Okay. So what stands out to me is how these young conservative voters were into Trump, DeSantis, Vivek, no interest in the old school Republicans. And I think I have had it in my head maybe a little bit. I have this weird bias where it's like, well, young people are just more moderate, like that they would still like some of these sort of moderate GOP candidates. But of course, they're actually more Trumpy, not less. And I mean, Trumpy, specifically Trumpy in that, and you said this earlier, their political cognizance is all Trump. And so current Republicans in their early 20s came to Republican politics because of Trump, not despite him, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was struck by how much these young Republicans and leaners like used Trump-style language and talking about politics. I interviewed Chris Christie on Thursday, just over the phone, and I actually read to him the quote about the guy in your focus group talking about how Trump was strong and respected in the world that obviously like Chrissy set, set him off and he disagreed with that. <laughs> but like he kept saying this person in your focus group that the attack in Israel wouldn't have happened if Trump was in office because Trump is strong. He projects strength into the world. Strong, 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 strong. He just felt like he had been indoctrinated by that vocabulary. The kid who talked about how Vivek quote, like is able to control the narrative again in politics. That's what you need to do. But like the fact that a like 20 something kid was like using that language, like 
controlling the narrative is a W. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, uh, <laughs> And then the other thought too is, unlike what we were just talking about with the young left, where I think they, a lot of them, like vote on issues and care about local politics, et cetera, and maybe the you know election for school board might matter for them. It might matter for these kids too, but in, like in the nationalized way. All politics is national all the way down for the Republican Party at this point. So like, you know, the school board election is about getting trans books out of school or, you know, whatever culture war issue of the week is is hot. And so there was one kid in your focus group who was talking about, like, he was like a green eye shade, like deficit dude. I was like, he like a Paul Ryan college Republican. And I was like, oh, I remember you guys. You still exist. That was me. Um, that was me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, this is the other thing too. And I, you know, I was thinking of Tim Miller, our boy, when this happened, but like calling like sexuality and ideology. Yeah. That was a little like cringe um, and, and tough to hear. And I imagine that would make Tim's like forehead veins throb as they do. When he <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I have one coming up with, with JVL. I try not to show those guys too many focus groups because I do worry about their, <laughs> their coronary health. Uh, it was glaring how quickly they jumped to the cultural issues. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, what do you think about the Republican party? It's like, well, the other party's crazy. And our party believes in like the biological reality of men and women it was like kind of where the, one of the guys started right away. And I was like, okay, it's just interesting to me to think like, that's a thing that makes you the Republican, but you hear that a lot from older Republicans as well. Um, Again, the good news here, if you're a Democrat or a Biden supporter is that you know, we're talking about these two different focus groups you did, but, you know, that generation is not 50-50. I know the polls, again, show Biden and Trump split among young voters, but all evidence in the last eight years points to this generation votes like 66 to 33 Democrat, Republican. Totally. And there were a couple people, there's like a young woman in the group, which by the way, I'll just say that the group's gender makeups were interesting. Like the progressives just had more women in it. And the conservatives one just had more dudes in it. But like one of the young women in the conservative group, she was clearly um, socially conservative, but also like she didn't love Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also, they're not really like considering Nikki Haley. Yeah. There's kind of Trump and that's all there is. So this is a, a question I have for you, which is when I talk to reporters all the time, they have this idea of like, was the Republican Party going back somewhere, right? Like you mentioned Paul Ryan. Like, is there a world in which you kind of go back to something? And the answer, I'm always like, no, 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 no. Not only do voters not want it, but like yeah. you listen to these guys and you're like, okay, well, this is the future of the Republican Party. Like this is the new group. And what do they think? Who do they like? Um, so what do you think the future of the Republican Party looks like? I think a lot of this is built around media and and what a lot of these folks here in, in their media spaces. There was one person who, the person who said they liked DeSantis. The way they brought that up was really interesting. Just the tone of voice. It was like, Oh, I think I kind of like DeSantis. One of my friends told me about him. If you are Sarah Longwell or Peter Hamby, like, you know, you know, Ron DeSantis, you talk about him all the time inside out. He was brought up almost as like, I'm kind of into that guy that I've sort of heard of. Trump like dominates the headspace, the mindshare for, for a lot of these folks. But we have to keep in mind that even among like these young liberals who like spend a lot of time on TikTok and Snap and Instagram, you know, they're also like, getting headlines from credible news sources and, you know, probably some left-leaning news sources, you know, they will read CNN if they had to open a link. They will read the New York Times if they had to open a link. On the right, that doesn't exist anymore. And so you've got this whole 
generation of young conservatives who are reared on turning point memes and Ben Shapiro and Bannon and Bongino. And like, they're certainly not watching cable news because like everyone in that generation, they're not watching any broadcast or cable news. And so the world where they're getting information is just full of Trump, 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 or people who can act and behave like Donald Trump, like Vivek Ramaswamy. And so that's where they're coming up. You know, I talked to Tim about this too. Like, and this is probably true with you too, Sarah. Like when we were in college, even if you were of a different like political persuasion, like you still had to, and this is like well after the Walter Cronkite, like voice of God broadcaster era, you go online and you'd go to Drudge or you'd check out the weekly standard at the library or, you know, you'd watch the news or maybe you'd listen to like Rush or Mark Levin on the radio. But now you can just segment yourself and listen to your infotainment, right-leaning media content. And that's, again, where a lot of these people have received a lot of their ideas and and knowledge, if you want to call it that. And that's not changing. That's right. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so I want to turn... Now, I'm going to go back to the Young Progressives for a minute because we we did ask them about the situation in the Middle uh-huh. East. And I felt a little bad asking, you know, early 20-something. I felt bad asking them to opine yeah. on this conflict, but considering yeah. how much this discourse has involved progressives on college campuses and, like, is about sort of young people, I was eager to hear what they thought. So let's listen. This is, like, all of my sister's campus that I've heard about um, in New York is that the people making decisions are usually you know, white Jewish males. So obviously there's like a natural bias towards like that group of people. And like, obviously like from World War II and everything, like, you know, anti-Semitism is still a big problem now, even before this, but now this has kind of like blown that up. If their donors were, you know, Muslim, if their like students were Muslim and they had more of that population that was wealthy and loud enough to speak out, you also wonder what like that might have done. I overall have a lot of like mixed opinions on this because I think it's really complicated and that most people aren't really educated on the history. And I think I know a fair amount about it, but not enough still because I'm not, I'm really like not personally affected by any of this. I also think that I can see how it's affected my opinions of other people. Like I do personally know people who are like publicly supporting Israel and acting like Israel's like the only victim here. And it it has changed my opinion of them. I am Jewish. And I think it's kind of interesting because I'm not Zionist, but I've known about the conflict like for many, many years, because obviously like it's supposed to be the homeland of the Jewish people and stuff like that. But I hate the Israeli government. I hate Hamas. Hamas is still a terrorist group. And it's been an overwhelming month. Because, like, I know people there, people who live in Israel. I have a lot of Jewish friends and a lot of friends that are also, like, very pro-Palestine. And it's really tough. Like, I I can't be on Instagram half the time because I just get so, so overwhelmed and, like, disheartened. 
first and foremost, no citizen should be brutally murdered. And I think it has been horrible to see like people celebrating like Israeli deaths and then like Palestinian deaths as well. So you recently wrote about the way many Democrats are concerned about how younger progressives are reacting to the situation in Israel. Mm-hmm. Representative Jake Auchincloss said that Gen Z tends to collapse all the context of and history of the Middle East into to a binary of oppressor versus oppressed. Given that, what did you make of these young progressives? I, well, one, like the woman there who said, like, it's changed my opinions of people. I saw one person publicly expressing support for Israel as if that was like, like a deal breaker. But yeah. on the whole, I actually, again, this is where you get away from the maximalism and dichotomies of social media. A lot of these young people were able to balance multiple ideas in their head and say, you know, what a lot of people probably think, which is like, BB's government isn't awesome. <laughs> like Hamas sucks. But I really hate the fact that people are always posting about this. I need to log off. That's a very normal and real, relatable feeling, I think, for a lot of people. And and I was appreciating the fact that they were able to just say, it's okay to hit pause. You don't need to like be posting all the time, be posting through it. And it was a, it was a different conversation, I thought, than what you're hearing, I think, online and all of the, the examples that, that we're seizing on of like stupid people on college campuses. And the one thing that, that just I can't quite figure out about the young left on this is some of them out there, not the people in your focus group, you know, accuse Biden of genocide, whatever. He's not the prime minister of Israel. <laughs> right. He's the president of the United States. He's certainly taking a strategy toward Israel that is keeping Netanyahu close so he can negotiate with him and sort of bend the conflict in whatever direction is in America's best interest. Yes, we're sending them arms and money. Um, at the same time, like people are acting like Joe Biden is the one flattening Gaza. And they have to remember that like that's a big oversimplification. And there were, again, a lot of people in this focus group who seemed like, surprisingly to me, were like somewhat aware of the history here. And that is, again... Once you start to talk to people in person in these focus groups, there's a very different political conversation than the one happening online. And that is true across stories, issues, political events. Talking to people in person is better. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I kind of liked that some of the kids in this group said, they would say like, I don't know enough about it. And then they would like say some things, but they were like, you know, I'm not an expert. And I'm like, Good, because all of these young people, I mean, even me, that this conflict, I mean, the amount of time I've spent going back to be like, what was the last accord? And like, what did Clinton do? How did this all get this way? And who's who? The fact that many of them were willing to just say, I don't know enough, and I'm not going to go opine on social media about it every five minutes. And it's annoying that everybody else is. That's a good instinct. I appreciate I love that, that instinct. instinct. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. More of that, please. It's Okay. <laughs> Restraint is a virtue that is lost in our culture. Restraint is. is a virtue. Remember it. Yeah. Or just be like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So now I'm going to bounce back to the conservatives where we did ask them to talk about free speech and cancel culture. You know, Gen Z and college campuses are at the center of the cancel culture discourse in America today. So we deliberately screen these groups for folks who are either still on college campuses or graduated pretty recently, which I said before. So a lot of the young conservatives talked about self-censoring mm-hmm. uh, when they're writing papers or participating in group discussions. Let's listen. I had a writing class. We talked about immigration, for instance, the wall. Like that was back when 
and I wrote a paper about it. It was like, it was spot on everything. Like I had checked by even the writing center and they still gave me a D for that paper when I had actually a Disney class about gender and I wrote, you know, what they wanted to hear. And I got an A plus. So it's really impossible to really voice your opinions. I was at a leadership um, summit and call it jam. I was up for some sort of like activity reflection. And then I just brought up this simple fact. I was like, hey, you know, men and women are physically different. Usually, most of the time, men are physically stronger than women. So I thought that was fine. Like, you know, sure, it's probably this biological fact, right? So then after the activity, a few of my, no, they were my friends before. They, they like, they said that that's not true. You got to do your science, you know, check behind that. And I was like, oh, really? Needed like a, like a writing class or some like specific requirements. And one of the classes that was available was like global gender and women's studies, you know, a lot of these people are very liberal and I was kind of like, you know, nervous about voicing my opinion because I've heard of many articles of like, you know, people kind of um, getting failing grades or things like that because they voice their opinions. So kind of like I kind of like try to take a very soft approach and kind of like, you know, plan my words carefully because I generally do not want to like, you know, fail a class and then kind of like ruin my graduation. Okay. Some people are going to probably roll their eyes at the idea that we just heard discussed, you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe you'd get a lower grade. But I will say in my days as a campus conservative, I remember taking a gender race and sports class Mm -hmm. and easily received my lowest grade in college. And I think the more liberal elements on campus did make me want to double down a little bit on my conservatism. Uh, So do you think that college campuses, do they end up kind of radicalizing uh, some of these conservatives? What do you think? Well, you mentioned that puck piece I wrote with Jake and some other millennial Democrats in Congress, and they agreed with you. Richie Torres sort of said the same thing, that campuses have become illiberal. That's an overheated take in some respects. I agree with you, though. Like, it's not any stretch of the imagination to imagine a professor or a TA giving you a bad grade because one of your papers or one of your hand raised in class disagrees with the received wisdom on any given topic. I mean, that's always been there. It's also like, I don't know, like when I was in college, my professors were authority figures. Yeah. Now that I'm old enough to be a professor, I realize how many of my peers are morons, (laughs) a left and right. And it's just like people are susceptible to bringing their personal politics and their social media diets into the classroom. So that's not crazy to imagine. By the way, I heard this. I remember going to the University of South Carolina for Good Luck America back in 20, ooh, 2016 and interviewing college Republicans on campus there. We also went to SMU and we went to Berkeley, interviewed college Republicans at these three campuses all over the country. All of them at the time said what those kids just said there, which is they were sort of afraid to like raise their hand in, in a classroom environment or afraid to write something in a paper because they were afraid they would get a lower grade. I, I think that's not a crazy thought, actually. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I bounce around on this a little bit because I felt perfectly safe being, I don't even know if provocative is the right word, but I certainly would push back. I was sort of, would talk about being a conservative. It was no secret. And I, at Kenyon College, quite liberal, felt no problem doing that. And I think some of this can be like, there's a, a victim mentality that I think you get taught kind of early as a conservative where like the culture is against you and you have to be like iconoclastic or heterodox in order to push back against this pervasive liberal yep. bias in the media and on campus, whatever. And I think there is both truth to it. And then there's I th- also think a way that people kind of like lean into it. And also, I don't know, part of me wants to say to these guys, 
Yeah, I got a C in gender, race, and sports in college. You want to know how much that affected my professional <laughs> life? Like, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? I mean, like, and also, if you don't want to get a C talking about those things, like, don't take that class. Yeah. Like, take a different class. If you take a class called gender, race, and sports, you, like, sort of know what you're in for. Yeah, that's true. I also think, like, this is my experience in a lot of ways. I went to Georgetown, and, you know, their theory of education, those Jesuits, is, like, it's if you have robust epistemological debates in the classroom and on campus, whether you agree or disagree, that's a good thing. Like it's teaching you how to think and how to joust. And a good professor theoretically would, even if they like somehow disagree with your politics, still be willing to be like, okay, this person did the work and here's your proper grade. That's how I sort of think it should work. But you know, I'm not in college today, so who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I sort of think that's one of these, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same things. Like, this, this conservative sounded exactly like the rest of, like, the conservatives I knew when I was in college. You're the fourth person in my life who went to Kenyan. Uh, oh, really? Ami Vitor. Are the positive American oh, yeah. went to Kenyan. He and I were in the same class. Oh, okay. There you go. And then uh, my two best friends from high school, uh-huh. Nat and Kellen, both went to Kenyan. I went to visit and hang out with them multiple times. Oh, wow. We would have been, if you're only a year younger, we might have been there hanging out the same time. We would have been hanging out with the uh, hanging out with the Amish. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Well, I'm from Central Pennsylvania, so I grew up hanging out with the Amish. So I was doing that my whole. Oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Not like some of these kids who came to Kenya and were like, "Ooh, I got to buy some apple butter for the first time." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. So just for our last segment here, as we wrap up, one of my favorite things is when you ask one of these groups sort of what they think about the other group thinks of them, mm-hmm. right? So we asked uh, some of the progressives. And we didn't hear much sympathy for their conservative peers on free speech. And they also thought of cancel culture as a good accountability mechanism. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. They have ways of getting out their beliefs. When I was in college, I don't know if it was every semester or every few semesters, people would come in, like Republicans or like conservative students would plaster giant pictures of aborted fetuses, dead fetuses, and say, abortion's terrible. This is why you shouldn't support abortion. And this is why I don't support abortion. And there had to be police around the area just so there weren't fights or anything. I think they want to create this idea that they're going to be so, oh my gosh, I can't speak my truth. Like I can't like, you know, talk about like my beliefs, but like nobody's going to like hark on them about, oh, you think this economic plan is, you know, better. Most of the stuff that conservatives and college campuses are talking about are not economic, whatever other parts of government. When they're talking about like conservative ideals, it's mostly social. It's mostly hate speech and just mean things. I think people question a lot whether like after somebody has been canceled, if they can like have a redemption or not, I guess. And I feel like a lot of the time it's no, like you can't just continue like with the platform that you have and like the consequences of being canceled is that you don't get like a redemption. But I think that people can always like still be better. A lot of the people complaining about cancel culture are people that are just upset that they're being held accountable. And it makes me think also back to like, you know, we're all younger here. Like, when we were first getting on the internet and like posting on social media and stuff, I feel like our parents and grandparents were like, Oh my gosh, watch what you post. Like you can't put anything out. And I remember having a whole library discussion on your email address, not even having your name or your age in there. And yet it tends to be the older generations that are now, you know, getting called out for stuff that they did when they were younger 
maybe you shouldn't have sexually assaulted somebody 20 years ago. That's going to follow you. And it's okay that it follows you because you shouldn't have done it. Man, AI, if you just said like AI, young progressives, (laughs) whatever, I think they could have nailed that, right? It was like, it's hate speech. This is good accountability. I I found that to be a mix, actually. Like some of it's like very rational. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. It was a mix. I had a mix of feelings. Some of it felt like uh, the coddling of the American mind come to life. You know, someone said that, certain kinds of speech should be outlawed and should become a federal crime, you know? Uh, You know, if you Mm -hmm. say a slur, which is bad. But I did appreciate that one person said, like, words and language can cause violence uh, rather than, like, language is violence. You know, language is not violence. But yeah, like, overheated rhetoric can lead to violence. January 6th being a good example of that. Another place Mm -hmm. I agreed with them, too, a little bit is, and this cuts to the, the conversation we had about young conservative media. There are a lot of young conservatives who are, you know, mischievous and rebellious, and they are deliberately trying to be provocative on campuses. And going back to even before Donald Trump, I mean, like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder, you know, post up on campuses. Charlie Kirk does it. Matt Walsh, like you just like take a camera and a microphone and try to like, quote unquote, trigger and own the uh, young liberals on campus. And so you know, I can see how the young Democrats here or progressives like really think that there's no ideology on the right. It's just to go in and offend people on cultural issues, on identity issues, on social issues. You know, one person brought up Milo. I mean, that was his whole bit back in like 2017, which just like go to Berkeley and like see what kind of protests happen. But yeah, I mean, then on the flip side, like Milo's not punching you in the face. Like, you let him speak. Don't go to the thing if you don't want to. Like, yeah, he sucks. <laughs> yeah. Go do something you want to do. I, I think that talking about being triggered and all that stuff is a little silly. But I thought they, I thought they kind of had their conservative compatriots kind of nailed on the. They are just trying to be provocative, but also it is just the best time in the world to be a campus conservative. Like these you can guys, become famous. The, like <laughs> super famous, super famous. Like with the girl who was like, no one's stopping yeah. you. The self-censorship is probably also somewhat true because you are in a dominant culture, but also like you can have a podcast and there's a Turning Point USA chapter and you Mm -hmm. can go out and find liberal tears if you want them. And like no one's kicking you out of school. And so like I sort of I think everybody needs to. Well, they're all 20. What are you going to do? They're all 20. They're all going to grow up. Then they'll all be better. Just like just like we were at that age. Totally. All right. Peter Hamby. Thank you so much for doing this. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Focus Group podcast. We've got a couple more shows to go this year. You won't want to miss any of them. Take care out there. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you. Happy holidays.